you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Mark 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came and went out into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down to the steep bank into the lake where they were drowned. Those tending the pigs off reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then Jesus began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And Jesus, getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed began to go with him. Jesus did did not let him, but said, "'Go to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you.' And how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Amen. Yeah, that's quite a story, isn't it? I think every once in a while, if you're listening, once in a while, if you're paying attention when you come to a piece of Christian scripture like this, that you, you think, if this is true... And I believe it is. If this is true, it really changes everything. And so today, in this passage, we come to what is the longest, most detailed, strangest, certainly most chilling account of an exorcism in the Bible. And as we come to it, we're going to see four things today that if they really are true, if what the Bible says about them are true, that it really does change how we see those Four things. And I want to get right to those four things in the passage today. We're going to see, first of all, what evil is. We're going to see how demons win, how darkness grows, and finally, how Jesus triumphs over all. What evil is, how demons win, how darkness grows, how Jesus triumphs over all. If this is your first time, I'm so glad you're here. For this message today. No, it's going to be good, I, I, I hope. Anyway, all right, let's just begin here. Number one, let's look at what evil is. We'll start in chapter 5, verse 2. It says, When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit 
came from the tombs to meet him. Let's pause right there. Because when you read just this one verse in in our 21st century, uh, modern, Western, secular, skeptical mindset, you you may recoil a little bit from this, uh, you know, not necessarily out of shock or surprise as much as here's the word of skepticism, of cynicism, because you're like, come on, man, demons, spirits, you know, devils, like what is it? Are we for real today? But hang on a second, hang on a second, because, and you probably know this, the vast, vast majority of the world believes in the supernatural and specifically in a God, in a good, personal, supernatural being. So if you're in that category today, I'm assuming most of us are, you are, if you're a person who believes in a good, personal, supernatural being, why would it be illogical to believe that there are also dark, evil, supernatural beings? The answer to that question is not only would it not be illogical to believe they exist, it would kind of sort of maybe probably be illogical to believe they don't exist. The majority of the world, to the majority of the world, the idea of Satan, demons, a a dark spiritual realm helped them, you know, spiritual warfare, it helps them make sense of the world, are accepted as commonplace and are true. If you go to Latin America, Asia, Africa, I have, you speak there, you minister there, they, they, you see, they believe this is true. So at least in the interest of not looking down our collective noses at the rest of the world, at least in the interest of not being culturally narrow-minded, I know you don't want to be that, neither do I, we ought to at least take at face value here and consider what the Bible has claimed all along, that there is a supernatural being called the devil, there are demons, and that we don't just wrestle and fight against evil people, which we certainly do, but we also wrestle and fight against dark supernatural powers. Well, why though? Some of you are still, I don't know. Why, why is this so hard for us to believe? Let me try to illustrate for a minute. Uh, a man by the name of Andrew Del Banco. He's a humanities professor at Columbia University in New York. He wrote a book a few years ago called, what a great cover by the way, uh, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And he opens the book with this statement as the very first words. He says this quote, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. He's basically saying we see more evil than ever before, but we don't know what to do with it. And therefore, as a result, now when our culture asks, what is wrong with the world? Why is there so much evil? Now we say, well, everything has a natural cause. It's either bad genetics, uh, bad psychology, bad systems, uh, regressive religion, for example. Everything in the world that's evil has a natural cause. And therefore we, therefore, we try to treat it with only natural solutions. Education alone, information alone, restructuring social systems alone. But Del Banco goes to point out, and by the way, he calls himself not a Christian, but a secular liberal person. He points out that that approach is ultimately naive. Two examples. First of all, he says, look at Nazi Germany. Uh, You know, there was one of the most ruthless killing cultures that's ever existed. Who were these people? Well, he points out that they were some of the most educated people of their day, if not the most, most educated, most wealthy. They had science, they had philosophy, art, music, literature, culture, a sense of national identity. And what did they do? They weaponized all of it. 
weaponized all of it. They used education actually to kill. So to suggest education alone, improving that, will eliminate evil, it's naive. And Del Banco says, saying all evil can be eliminated by restructuring social systems alone, redistributing wealth, that's naive as well. He said, look at Marxism, former Soviet Union, the capitalists that day before the revolution. They were wicked, selfish, brutal. And Marxism said, well, let's upend the system altogether. Let's redistribute wealth, give power to the people who have been fundamentally disenfranchised, called the proletariat. And what did they do? Well, they were as or more wicked than the capitalists ever were. So Tabanco says, if you think all evil just has a natural cause, you don't get it. And he summarizes his whole thought with a scene from a movie which itself is a case study of evil. The movie, The Silence of the Lambs, which I am not recommending to you. I am not endorsing the movie. I am using it as an illustration to prove a point, I hope. All right. Thank you. He quotes Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who was not a real person, by the way. Just have to stay it. It's a cannibalistic serial killer. Yeah, not good. I mean, how many TV shows and movies can they make about him? But anyway, in the movie, in the, in the original, he's talking to police officer Starling, it's Jodie Foster's character, and he's describing all the horrific things he's done to her. And she finally asks him the question, what happened to you to make you so bad? Who did something to you to make you so evil? And here's what he said. Here's his response. Quote, nothing happened to me. Officer Starling, I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say I'm evil? Until Bonko concludes like this. Today, we have no answer for the monster's question. No answer for the monster's question. We don't know where evil comes from. And therefore, we fail to defeat evil because we don't even really believe it exists in the first place. How can you defeat something if you don't believe it's real? Our culture can't answer the monster's question. Let me tell you something. Christianity can and Christianity has. Because it says this, all evil in the world is not the result of natural causes. There are actual demonic powers. And therefore, evil, all the evil in the world, can't be reduced to a set of human choices. Humans, yes, we do have a capacity for evil inside of us. But this cannot account for all the evil in the world. One example, quickly, look at the opioid crisis today in the States. There are people who need a level of medication to help them for sure with stress or recovery or procedure or whatever. But humans, we know this, can choose to abuse drugs. It's personal evil. We have pharmaceutical companies who have pushed pills. We know this, to flood the market, to make money. There are lawmakers who probably have been bought to look the other way. That's corporate and systemic evil. And now supernatural evil aggravates inflames, magnifies it all. So to the question, what is evil? The Bible says this. Evil is complex. Evil is complex. There are evil people, evil systems, and supernatural evil that magnifies it all. And if you, and we are, here's, the, here's my term. We're not just naive, we're powerless before that evil if we refuse to believe and acknowledge that. So that's number one. Evil is complex. 
Are you with me so far? I hope so. All right. And one part of that evil, the supernatural evil part, we're going to look at right now. Number two, how demons win. So specifically, let's look at these dark supernatural powers and ask, how do demons win in the world? What's their main strategy, their main power? Well, it's deception, but in a specific sense. Deception in a specific sense here is what I mean. I mean, demons win when people, when humans are deceived about, when we misunderstand who the devil is, uh, what demons are in the first place before we ever get to a passage like Mark 5. So for a moment, let me just try to set the record straight. According to Christian scripture, Satan is a powerful but finite, singular, fallen angel who he became proud, rebellious. He led a failed coup of heaven. He was banished, took those fallen angels with him, and he lives, he exists to frustrate God's plans and frustrate and harm you and me, God's people. Well, if that's the case, and I believe it is, how do we become deceived about that? Here's how we become deceived if we either either overestimate Satan or we underestimate him overestimate underestimate and C.S. Lewis has always puts it best in his book Screwtape Letters. You should read it if you have it. He says this quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race humans can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. All right. What's he saying? He's saying the devils on one hand, they love a magician. This is C.S. Lewis's word for a Christian person who just says everything is the devil's fault. Or who pulls the devil on cue like from behind a curtain or like a magician would pull a rabbit out of a hat like, are you sick? It's the devil. Did you get a flat tire? Man, that's the devil, right? I mean, you, you can't find a parking space at the mall or at Costco. The devil. I mean, did the pastor actually ask you to give or serve? Demonic, right? I mean, did the, bad, did the batteries, the batteries go out on the remote in the middle of the game? Oh, that's the devil. Persecution, right? But why would, why would the devil love that approach, the magician approach? Here's why. It's because it's too simplistic. It doesn't take into account the full range of the true causes of a person's issue or suffering, leaving a person ultimately unhealthy and unhealed and not whole. For example, maybe the reason you're angry all the time isn't because the devil's making you angry. Maybe it's because you need to forgive that person. Like how long are you going to hang on to that thing from the past? Maybe you need to forgive your friend, your father, your boss, right? I mean, see, anger can have a moral root to it, not just demonic. Maybe the reason you're sick is because, you know, you've got multiple small children and you never, ever, like never, ever get to rest, take a nap, say sleep through the night hmm, like a human being. Yeah, you might get sick. Sickness can have a physical cause to it, not just demonic. Maybe the reason you're feeling guilty, not because the devil's making you feel that way, but because you need to repent, you need to change, you need to stop living that way or doing that. See, guilt can have a psychological root to it, not just demonic. And maybe the reason you're depressed, 
like my grandfather was. It's because at 21, you enter the military. You are forced into combat zones. You witnessed unspeakable horrors. You've got no skills to deal with. Depression can have a variety of causes. And the Bible acknowledges all of this is true. It acknowledges that people have a variety of causes, a variety of things that afflict them. And you can see this when Jesus heals who? Come on, over in the Gospel of Matthew, it says he healed both the demon-possessed and what they described as the lunatic. Now, that's not a good word, old word, terrible word, but it's pointing to a truth the Bible writers were trying to describe. They knew long ago that to struggle with a mental illness is not the same as to struggle with a demonic. And we, confuse, we, get, we lose, the demons win when we confuse the two, conflate the two. See, magicians are superstitious Christians. Everything's the devil's fault. They overestimate his power, influence, presence. But materialists, those who only believe matter is all that exists, are substitious, to use Lewis's phrase. They underestimate the devil. Instead of seeing him everywhere like the magician, they see him nowhere even when his presence is there. And therefore, neither side has ultimately help or healing for what? people really need. And let me tell you, the materialist, there's no such thing as a supernatural modern Western person, hear me, they would have been of no help to this man in Mark 5. The demons win when we either pull them out of a hat or, or we say that they don't exist at all. And either way, we flatten people. We don't help them. So church, let's fall into neither trap. Amen. Now, let's also keep going. Let's go a little further. Number three, Look at how darkness grows in us. And if you thought that previous point was a bit too much, hang on. It's going to get uncomfortable for a minute. So you can just grab, not your neighbor's hand. We're not doing that today. Uh, We're just grabbing the seat. Grabbing the seat. Because what this passage shows us is that in a way, in a way and up to a point, this man in the tombs could be any one of us. It could be any one of us. What do I mean? I mean this. Our English translations, let's look at it, use the word demon-possessed to describe this man at the end of the story in verse 18. And verse 18 says, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Of course he would. But the Greek doesn't use this word possessed. It only uses one word, the word demonized. Our English translation puts that word in demonized, which unlike a lot of words in Greek, demonized has one Singular meaning. It means to be under the power of a demon, to be under the influence of a demon. The original text says he had only been under the power of a demon. Now, here's a qualifier. Well, I don't believe that a Christian who has the Holy Spirit can be possessed by, owned by a demon. Any person, including a Christian person, can be influenced by, under the power of, to a certain extent, or even tormented by a demon. Before you say, no way, hang on, listen. Didn't the Apostle Paul say in 2 Corinthians 12, the answer is yes, he did say, that he was perpetually tormented by a messenger of who? Satan, yeah, come on, you know your Bible, some of you. And where did he say that messenger of Satan was? Paul said he had a messenger of Satan in his flesh. Somewhere, somehow, he said he was fighting what he described as a demonic, satanic power in his body. This is a super-educated lawyer, college-educated guy of his day. Scholars, though, debate on what this was, of course, but we shouldn't debate on what it wasn't. It wasn't angelic. It wasn't there to bless him. 
It was demonic. It wasn't outside Paul. It was in his body at some level. Now, he wasn't possessed by it, and it didn't stop him from doing amazing things, preaching Jesus, the gospel, planting churches, seeing people get healed, praying for folks themselves, writing letters that became the Christian scriptures. In the end, he overcame it, but he was tormented by it. Now, that's the Apostle Paul. You think you or I, someone we may know, might fight the same thing? I think we might. Any person can be afflicted, influenced, overpowered in a way. Maybe not to the degree this man in the tombs was, but any person can look up and find themselves fighting, wrestling. I've experienced this, fighting something darker than I ever believed existed. And if you're going to stand your ground and fight me on this, let me tell you, sorry, not sorry, you should just come to work here, this church, for a week. Go on campus, the University of Texas. And see whether or not this is true. Because we, as you see throughout the Bible is that demonic powers primarily, primarily, though not exclusively, find their way into a person's life through one of two ways. One is simply through a choice that people make that opens a door to the demonic in their lives. Adam and Eve in the garden. Open door. Judas Iscariot, open the door. It says that Satan entered him. Uh, Other people do this in the book of Acts. The enemy comes in when people open the door themselves. And the other main way, though not exclusive way, darkness grows in us is through something that someone else just did to us. Some, some way that someone did something to us. We didn't ask for it. We weren't complicit in it. But the, what's happened to us, done to us, overwhelms us. And we are left shattered, unable to deal with the growing darkness. Therefore, some way, somehow, this man in Mark 5, through a choice he made, or maybe through something that was done to him, this man is experiencing the darkness overwhelming, growing in him. Look at all the detail here about how darkness grows. Verse 3. This man, it says, lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, Cut himself with stones. Whew, is that kind of freaky? Yeah. Horror movie stuff? Yeah. But true? Yeah, look at all this eyewitness detail. The darkness grew. See, it only, this is saying, it only used to go so far. He could contain it. Then he couldn't. Then other people used to be able to contain and control. Then they couldn't. And now it's grown past that to the point where no one can control it. Now he can't help but hurt himself no matter what. Does this sound like someone you know? Does it sound like maybe someone you've been? Yeah. Morgan, are you saying if I'm struggling today, I'm under the influence of a demon? No, I am not saying that. Did I say that today? No, I did not. Did he say that today? No, he did not say that. To say that would be to become C.S. Lewis's magician. Pull the rabbit out of my hat. Everything's demonic. No, we all struggle in life many ways because we live in a fallen world. Fallen people, fallen bodies. To say every struggle is automatically demonic would be to ironically minimize the power and point of this passage. All I'm saying is this, that if the purpose of a demonic power is to ruin a person's life, to grow darkness in them until they can't handle it. If the pattern of evil and darkness in a person's life has grown to the point that they can't help it 
anymore. They've gone everywhere for a cure, tried every solution, like that father or that boy in Mark 5. If that's you, and the darkness is growing to the point that no one, including you, can stop it, I think at this point we should listen to the wisdom of the Bible and acknowledge that we just may need the, a kind of help we had not previously considered. You may need today to call on the name of the one who's come to set the captive free. You may need to call on the name and the power of the one who the apostle Paul called on in his torment and just like in Paul's life, just like in Paul's fight, to have whatever dark thing you're fighting today to be broken and turned for good in the end, just like it was in Paul's life. So how can we, do we get that? Finally, some of you are saying, thankfully. Number four, how Jesus triumphs over all. How does he do it? How does Jesus triumph over evil, darkness, sin, the demonic? Well, let's take a look. What's going on right here? If you can see it rightly, what we're being shown by the writer Mark, who's writing to a Roman audience, they believe in spirits, they believe in gods, goddesses, a supernatural world. What we are being shown is the first century equivalent of a Wild West showdown and Old West shootout. This is the equivalent of a town full of people being harassed by a, a dark power. They won't even come out anymore. They're more powerful than they are. And in comes, in rides, a lone sheriff who's come on a mission to put things right. And when this demonized man approaches Jesus, he comes down, saunters down, right down the middle of that town. The demonized man draws first, and he says this. Here's his first shot. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high? In God's name, don't torture me. Why does he say this? Well, if you, know, if you didn't know, there was an ancient superstition at the time that if you could know and name and call out the specific name of your spiritual adversary, that would, in theory, give you power over it. So this question, in that light, is this man's attempt, not at repentance, not at getting help, not at getting freedom from Jesus. This is this man's attempt at getting power over Jesus. This is his drawing his like demonic six-shooter and firing him first at Christ. But see, look, he calls Jesus by what? His name. Specifically, Jesus, son of the most high. And then he tries to command Jesus in God's name. But guess what? It's not going to work. So what does Jesus do? Well, at first it looks like he's going to do the same thing. And yet it's not. Let's see what he does. Verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? So Jesus asked him the name. It looks like he's doing the same thing. And look at what the man answers. My name is Legion, he replied. For we are many. Well, that escalated quickly. Um, This is a twist in the story. This is where the stakes are raised because the man doesn't actually give Jesus a name. He only gives him a quantity because a Roman legion in that day was around 6,000 men. The point is when Jesus asks for the name of a single demon, not only does he not get the name, it looks like he's kicked a hornet's nest on the inside. Again, if this were that Western, this is the point where all the, the henchmen come out, all the minions come out, all the followers of the bad guy draw their weapons. It looks like it reveals that the righteous one who's come to clean up the town is hopelessly impossibly outnumbered. This looks like Jesus versus thousands, except, and this is the real twist. Despite all of these demons leaning out of this man's body, so to speak, it's not hopeless. Number one. And number two, Jesus is not outnumbered. Why? 
because he's Jesus. He isn't outnumbered. Let me tell you, he doesn't even need the name. And this is what he's trying to show you. He only asked the question to prove the point that he can do what he wants with a name, without a name. He doesn't need to drink a magic potion. He doesn't need to wave a wand. He doesn't need to pull a rabbit out of a hat or pull a trick. He is power. He is infinite almighty power. And it's about to come to an end in this man's life. In the words of those old Texas Rangers, one riot. One ranger, one riot, only needed one ranger to put the whole thing down. And Jesus shows us that an entire kind of demonic kingdom right here just needed one righteous king to put it down. He casts out the legion with one word, one command, and the man is freed. But what I want to show you, oh, is that it isn't just some kind of like raw, macho, posturing power Jesus exercises right here. No, it's a far better far deeper power he calls upon to win this man's life, future destiny, and name back in the end. At the end of the book of Mark, do you know what you see? What's that? What's flash forward? The end of the book. What do you see? Chapter 15. You see another young man, Jesus himself now in chains, him being led away. You see him being afflicted with iron in his feet, his body, like this man in the tombs was. You see Jesus cut bleeding by a power that looked greater than him. You hear him cry out with no one to help him. You see him deserted and alone. You see him overcome by darkness. It says a literal darkness fell over the land that day. And you see him days and nights. Where? Among the tombs. In a tomb himself. What's this showing us? It's showing us how Jesus triumphs over evil. It is through the supernatural power of substitutionary love. The supernatural power of substitutionary love. What was Jesus doing on that cross? In those two, in that tomb, in his passion? He was trading places with this man. Trading places with this man. Trading places with all of us. He came once to trade places with us so that our darkness could pass to him. And so that his victory over evil, over darkness could pass to us. That's the gospel. And he will come again as his resurrection proves. He will ride back into the town of this world one day to end evil for good. Jesus wins through the supernatural power of substitutionary love. He said, Morgan... Are you sure that's what's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because you can see Jesus loving this young man two ways for two reasons. Number one, this story opens with Jesus getting off a boat. We saw it last week after fighting an enormous storm, taking an enormous risk to come here. And the story closes with this detail so you won't miss it. Jesus talking to the man, what? While he's getting back in the boat. Jesus did one thing right here and one thing alone. He only came, this is showing us, for this man. He came for this man alone. This man was the reason he braved the storm. This man was the reason he made the journey that that he crossed the sea. And let me tell you today, you are the reason Jesus braved the storm of God's wrath. You are the reason that he made the journey to our world. You're the reason he crossed time and space. He has come here for love and to love you. And of course, number two, at the end, the pigs. (laughs) What about the pigs? Everybody always wants to know about the pigs. What's the deal with the pigs? We get worked up about this because we see the pigs differently. We don't understand them like they understood them. Who, who were these people pig farming in the Decapolis? It's a 10-city region of Palestine. 
They were primarily Roman people, not Jewish. The Jews would never touch pigs. The Romans bred them. They raised them. They saw the pigs as a source of income. Therefore, in sending Jesus into the pigs, he's sending a message. This is an object lesson. He's saying the value of one person's life is infinite. He's saying the, rede- the value of the redemption of one life, Jesus is saying, is priceless to me. And I think he's saying, if you think pigs are costly, oh, pigs have nothing on what I'm going to pay one day. Because one day, it won't just be pigs who carry away evil. I'll carry it away myself. And one day, like those pigs, I'm going to be driven to my death. My body will carry evil, will be broken open. And I, the one who knew no sin, will become like that unclean, broken driven to death so that you can go free. Jesus came for this man in this place to love him and to set him free. Jesus wins, not just by any kind of power, through the supernatural power of substitutionary love. And he's come for you, for me, and for us today. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.